Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here's a, here's a compromise on the wine list front. We start with a bottle of Prosecco. Yeah, to the balls on my Yeah, and then go to the house wine. No, you think. Yeah, okay. Okay. The FT Alphaville Christmas Podcast. Welcome, everybody. I'm Isabella Kaminska. We're recapping the year with the help of all the FT Alphaville elves. I'm going to start off by bringing in... Well, here we go. Ovaja yemye tuzia. Glajdan yer rossi. Itavarishi na hondavan linkia. Hang on! This isn't Pravda. This is the FT Alphaville Christmas podcast. Russia was an important story this year. It was, actually. I I, I was just so struck by your Russian that... um. I probably have murdered the language there, I'm afraid. But no, listen, it was a huge story. So who better to tell us what happened than yourself? Joseph Kotrog, please. It's a sad story in a way because the year began with the Ukraine crisis and I think very few people really expected it to have the impact on the financial markets it had in 2014. And in particular, the financial sanctions which Russia began to experience in the summer and have since made it very, very difficult for Russian companies and banks to issue debt abroad. And then, just when you thought the Ukraine crisis uh, was getting better and de-escalating, oil prices began to fall, and so did the ruble against the dollar. And then it kept falling, and as the year ends, it looks like we're facing a little bit of a debt crisis. Yeah, in a way, this is the year that reminded investors that Russia isn't an emerging market. Despite having a stock market with about half a trillion dollars in market capitalization, if I'm not mistaken, as it started the year, in terms of governance and how transparent that market is, really Russia was on the frontier. And people have forgotten that for a few years. But as the Ukraine crisis began, they were reminded of it very, very quickly. Wait, wait, hang on. You're saying it's not an emerging market. It's a frontier market. Yeah. I mean, it's don't let the size of the market fool you. I mean, you know, you have some really weird things going on there. I mean, if you look at Gazprom, it's an absolutely massive company. You know, it earns as much in a year as Apple does. And yet, if you look at it, so its price-to-earnings ratio uh, in the stock, it started the year at three times, which is really, really low and pretty weird in itself. And it's now leaving the year at 2.8 times. So it's gone nowhere. And we've gone through plenty of sort of highs and lows since then. But, you know, considering... An emerging market stock, and especially a big energy company, should be trading you know, 10, 11 times earnings. Gazprom's on free. And why is that? Why is that then? Well, I think Gazprom was pretty central to the Ukraine crisis and you know, the fact that you know, one of its pipelines goes straight through the country. Um, a big issue was whether Ukraine was paying for its gas on time. Uh, more recently, you've had South Stream the pipeline around Ukraine, which uh, Vladimir Putin recently said wasn't going to happen. And so as a shareholder or a minority shareholder in Gazprom, because obviously the Russian government owns most of it, you're always funding these incredible amounts of capital spending, which seem really to have been directed to political purposes. And again, you can say, oh, that happens in emerging markets all the time. But Russia and Gazprom really take it to the limit. And I suppose you think, well, okay, fine. I'm not going to put any of my money in this frontier market in 2015. And yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, we mentioned there does seem to be a debt crisis bubbling below the surface. You know, Russian companies and banks have to pay off about $125 billion of debt next year. And if those sanctions stay in place, that's going to be really, really hard. 
And however, you know, after such a bad year in Russia, maybe, just maybe, there is some value there and things will turn around. But tell me, Joseph, do you think the oligarchs will be uh, enjoying themselves in Courchevel this year? Uh it depends, you know, how much sort of wealth they've managed to get out of the country. I mean, like, you know, another big number for this year is about $120 billion of capital flight. And, you know, we've been talking about Gazprom. I could equally talk about Sistema, which has been sort of caught up in an investigation by the government this year. Because another long-standing investor fear about Russia is however valuable a company looks the government can always expropriate it and take your assets and another big event uh, this year too was also that the the UCOS shareholders managed to win a big arbitration against the Russian government and can now sort of um, seek a remedy for the assets that were taken off them Uh, so it wasn't really a great backdrop for any investor who had thought those problems had gone away into basic property rights so what what were your personal highlights in terms of the the Russian story? I mean there were there were obviously some very serious issues but there were some some uh, more uh, curious issues as well. I mean my personal favorite must have been when uh, Merkel tried to explain Putin's rather mm. machismo ways. She uh, famously said I understand why he has to do this. He to prove he's a man. He's afraid of his own weakness. Russia has nothing. No successful politics or economy. All they have is this. Yeah, but then another thing Merkel also said, and I think it was to Obama, was you know she's recounting a conversation she had with Putin, and she just said he seems to be in another world, really. So that's not an edifying spectacle uh, if you're thinking about putting money into that economy or that market. And so you know, I mean, you asked me for highlights, but any low light really was whenever Putin was opening his mouth i've also got matt on the on the line here from new york he joined us this year and on alphaville and um he's been sitting back in new york listening in so matt how did you view all this stuff going on in russia from your vantage point in the u.s you know there's a line that i think it was senator john mccain said that essentially it's just a giant gas. russia is essentially just a giant gas station and I have some sympathy with that view, and if you think about the extent to which oil and gas contribute to the economy, contribute to their ability to accumulate foreign reserves, and the extent to which prices of oil and to a lesser extent gas have fallen over the course of this year, it seems like that could be a real problem for Russia going forward, uh, in particular the ability of its private companies to service their debts in dollars, which is something that that Joseph definitely mentioned. Mm. The fact that the ruble has fallen is probably helpful on the margin insofar as if your main export is is oil and the price of oil in dollars has fallen if you try to maintain your currency peg you're probably going to default that's essentially very simplified what happened in in 98 so letting the ruble float has probably been a good decision for them at the margin but it still means that russians are getting a lot poorer and the, the food import bans are probably related to that i guess one thing that's interesting i'm not sure how much to make of this is I, th- I think it was a few, maybe a week ago, that Putin said something along the lines of an amnesty for capital that had fled the country if it came back. I don't really know what that means. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on what that means or what the significance of that could be. But it's, Yeah, it's, it's I mean, if I, if I can jump in there, that's actually been a long-term policy objective of the government in a way. Because it, actually, if you remember the Cyprus crisis, and it turned out there was actually quite a lot of Russian money in Cypriot banks... And at the time, Putin said, well, this is, you know, you oligarchs who, you know, aren't in my pocket. This is what happens when you try to get your money out of Russia. You know, accidents happen. And so they've been promoting this de-offshoreization trend for a while. And the sanctions would have added some strength to that view. But to, just to go back to your, your earlier point and McCain's quote about, uh, you know, Russia is just a gas station with a country attached... That's true, but they also have hypermarkets too. And Magnet is basically Siberian Walmart. It's Russia's biggest retailer. It's got a market cap of about 20-ish billion dollars. So that makes it about as big as Tesco in the UK. And it trades at about 20 times forward earnings. 
which makes it, you know, one of the most valued stocks by far. And what I think has happened there is because foreign investors don't want to buy Gazprom or Rosneft or any of the oil and gas exposure in Russia, which is hard because so much of Russia is oil and gas, they buy Magnet. But as you mentioned, Matt, you know, food imports, inflation, all of those factors are weakening the economy. That's surely not going to be great even for the magnets of the the Russian economy and capital market. And so you're going to have to be a pretty brave investor to sort of pick up those investments next year, I think. Thank you very much, Joseph. That was a really good recap. So you're listening to the FT Alphaville Christmas podcast, and um, we've just been wrapping through some of the big stories that happened this year. And now I've got Matt Klein, our newest acquisition. He He's in New York, and he's going to be giving us his account of the story that made him most excited this year. Thanks, Izzy. I'm going to be talking about what seemed like such a good idea at the time. You sell duration and you buy stocks. At the end of last year, the Fed was about to start tapering its asset purchases, so obviously long-term rates were going to go up. At the end of 2013, the CFA Institute polled its members about which asset classes they thought would do best in 2014. 71% said stocks, and only 4% said bonds. Guess what happened? Since the start of the year, the yield on a 30-year Treasury debt has plunged by more than a percentage point. If you lend to the U.S. government for three decades, you will get paid just 2.9% per year before inflation. Remarkably, most of this decline can be attributed to falling real yields rather than changing expectations of inflation. It's also a global phenomenon. Long-term rates have fallen about as much in the U.K. and significantly further in Europe and Australia. How could everyone have been so wrong? One theory is that the outlook for growth and inflation got a lot worse. People were expecting faster U.S. wage growth, rising commodity prices, and a rebound in emerging markets. Literally none of those things happened. Instead, we got slowing Chinese demand, sanctions on Russia, disinflation in Europe, the strong dollar tightening financial conditions for emerging market borrowers, and a glut of commodities thanks in large part to reduced demand. In other words, traders made the same mistake on rates that they've made throughout this cycle. They got their hopes up for a return to normalcy that never came. The problem with this theory is that growth in the U.K. and U.S. actually accelerated in 2014. Both countries did better in terms of GDP and employment than people were expecting at the start of the year. Look at the forecasts the Fed released to the public in December 2013, for example. Back then, U.S. central bankers were expecting that the unemployment rate wouldn't fall below 6% until the end of 2015 or possibly the beginning of 2016. Right now, the unemployment rate is already 5.8%. Perhaps even more significant, the share of Americans with a job rose in 2014 for the first time since the recession. So what else could explain the unanticipated drop in yields? Assuming you trust the economists at the Fed, the decline in long-term rates actually reflects the decline in something called the term premium rather than changing forecasts of growth or inflation. What is the term premium, you ask? To borrow a line from Greg Ipp, it is a statistical junkyard into which economists toss stuff they can't explain with fundamentals. In other words, the Fed is saying that rates went down because the fudge factor that covers up the Fed's inability to explain movements in long-term rates went down. That's not helpful at all. Our preferred theory is a little simpler. People trade based on what they think is going to happen. If everyone thinks that long-term rates are going to go up and position themselves accordingly, there isn't any pressure to actually make rates rise. That, arguably, was the situation at the start of the year. Nobody wanted to be long-duration unless they were a pension fund and had no choice. But then, for whatever reason, some of the bond bears switched to neutral. Maybe they got disappointed when rates didn't immediately start soaring. Maybe some people had borrowed bonds to sell short and got squeezed when prices started rising. For whatever reason, positions changed. Assets traded hands at new prices that reflected the new balance between supply and demand. Markets moved, and life went on. Now, don't take this as trading advice, but I find it striking that the consensus view of Wall Street strategies is pretty much the same as it was last year. Wage growth will accelerate, and long-term interest rates will go up. Hope springs eternal, I guess. 
Thanks, Matt. That's a really good uh, recap as well. Though I do notice that you're very serious about all this stuff, and um, I I know that this is well, this is the Christmas podcast, so we have to illustrate this story with some kind of gimmick. Um, you've picked this. You can just about hear that. <laughs> Explain yourself. Uh, well, I mean, I like the sound effect. It's, it's sort of what happened to rates. Everyone thought rates were going to go up, and instead everything just went... In case for those who are listening in and, and aren't familiar with the source material, that particular sound is actually the sound that was made when Obi-Wan Kenobi is turning off the tractor beam on the Death Star to enable the Millennium Falcon to escape. Um, well, what I wanted to ask is, where does October the 15th fit into this? Because, um, as you may remember, that was the day of the year when I think five-year Treasury yields fell like 10 basis points, which is a, you know, a massive move. Yeah. So anyone a... who thought rates were going to rise before then really got slapped around on that day. And yeah, that was quite late in the year and a big move. What do you think happened? So that's a great question. I mean, the, right, the answer at the moment is that nobody seems to know for sure. The you know, governments have been, regulators have been looking into it, and they don't really have a sense. I mean, the general trend throughout the whole period was rates falling, with the exception there was a small period, uh, I think it was right after Janet Yellen's Jackson Hole speech, that some people interpreted as a shift to slight hawkishness when rates began to rise for a couple of weeks. But besides that, the general trend in long rates was down. I, it's What seems believable to me about October 15th is basically you have some very leveraged short treasury players and something small happened they couldn't support they couldn't you know put up their margin or what have you and they were forced to liquidate their short positions and they, you know that accumulated and you had I mean there was a I think a, briefly the 10-year treasury went down to something like 1.8 percent was it was I mean now it's at, I think around 2.3 which is still much lower than when it started the year around three percent but I mean that was a, a pretty crazy crazy time I, I mean I it would be interesting to have a sense of why that happened. I mean, one argument that we've heard and I have some sympathy for is that regulations like the Volcker Rule, for example, have limited the willingness of banks to step in and provide some kind of floor when markets move very abruptly. I'm somewhat skeptical of that just because uh, in an extreme situation, banks generally don't tend to provide liquidity. They don't want to catch a falling knife just like anyone else. You know, the, the old joke is liquidity is always there when you don't need it. So I'm not sure how much of this is due to regulation versus just the fact that there were a lot of people who were highly leveraged and they were wrong. But it's definitely an interesting question. So um, maybe this is a good time, Joseph, to introduce our conspiracy theory. The one, the one we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're not meant to talk about the conspiracy theory, oh, is he? no, rats. But, um... Yeah, well, I mean... The, you know, Matt mentioned the liquidity issue. So here, a couple of months ago, there was me and, and Joseph sort of trying to figure out what the hell happened. And we came across this, um, this what is it, a ma asset manager, really? A rate well, I, I think they, sh they, they'll remain nameless. But basically, I mean, when you're looking at what caused October the 15th, it's, in a way, it was over-determined. There were, there were so many people betting on... You know, a certain movement in rates that you can you can look back at the reversal on that day and say, well, look, oh, they got it wrong, and so they had to quickly switch positions. And you can say that you know, even outside um, the rates market, you know, there is a lot of funny stuff going on, like the Ab v Shire merger collapsed on that day, and so all of the hedge funds or arbitrages were suddenly looking at a big loss. And that would have also changed positioning. And, you know, if I was a regulator, I would be slightly concerned about that because, you know, everything seems connected. And so it actually, that's even worse than a conspiracy theory in a way because you can't actually sort of pick out. I mean, at least, a conspiracy theory at least gives you one story. But when, you know, everyone is confused and, and, you know, and the general theme of what Matt's been saying is it's impossible to forecast the future even to say you know where 10-year yields are going to be a year out again that is worse than any sort of conspiracy it's just everyone is screwing up 
Sure, but I think I think the interesting thing about our little conspiracy theory was that um, at the time we kind of thought, well, this is too small a player to move the treasury market. And, um, you know, subsequently I've been talking to quite a few regulatory types who seem to think that maybe maybe small players can move treasury markets nowadays maybe i know matt was being a bit more um skeptical about it but um you know there's certainly there's certainly some voices out there who seem to think that small players can move markets nowadays because liquidity isn't what it used to be i guess the question is how much we should care if that's the case though i mean if it if it just happened in the course of a day i i would suspect that probably unless you were really lucky and when you were trying to apply for refinancing on your mortgage you probably wouldn't have noticed unless you're really paying attention to the markets on that one day. Thank you so much, Matt. That has been great. Thank you. I've asked everyone to bring a sound effect with them so as to reflect their stories a little bit better. Paul Murphy was going to join us. Unfortunately, he's been caught out, so I'm going to quickly provide his... Um, is it the latest Facebook acquisition? Uh, is it the Apple stock price? Or could it be uh, the latest valuation for Uber? And could it be the fact that everything this year was absolutely nuts? That is exactly the story. And, Looney Tunes. Um, sadly, Paul isn't here, but um, I will. I will reflect upon my favourite moment of the year, which happened just yesterday. It happened when I was sitting at my desk and suddenly Paul's phone went, Yo, bitch! <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> is, that, is that Yo, the app or just a sound effect? That is the new uh, new and improved Yo app, apparently. It's, really? it's all the rage with Paul's kids. So um, I got an invite the other day to, which went, Yo, bitch, join <laughs> this latest app thing. And I didn't, I really didn't know whether to take Paul seriously or not. I was like, oh, to be really offended. Um, so um, that's the situation. Dan is here now to tell us a little bit about a company called Quindell. Thanks, Izzy. So, Quindell. This has been, for me, one of the most interesting stories of the year because it says so much about what has been going on in some of the sort of murkier corners of the UK markets. And the noise for the ambulance-chasing law firm of the year, Quindell, is... this really strange, bizarre technology, insurance, conglomerate, acquisition, machine, disaster of stock promotion. It's, it has everything. It has a comparatively huge company. It was the biggest company on London's junior market, AIM, um, at the start of this year. It was worth almost three billion quid. And then a short seller appeared and the stock price collapsed. And then you have all these different aspects to it. You have the murky world of AIM stocks where you have to pay for research coverage and trading and the cosy relationship there. You have regulators not really paying attention when perhaps they should do. You have um, the ability of companies to sell a good story to investors and use the currency created their shares to go on absurd acquisition sprees. You have a track record of a founder who is colourful and spinning this tale. And you have just the reaction that Quindell caused. So I've been trying to capture all of this in sort of a visual metaphor. And it's really hard because there's so much to it. But I think the best thing is try and visualise a fetid, sulphurous, stinking swamp. Now imagine an ambulance crashes through the undergrowth and straight into the swamp and starts sinking. And back on the road, you have the police standing around trying to decide whether they should maybe put a sign up to warn people about the swamp. And then you have this short seller, Daniel Yu, from Gotham Research, dressed like Batman, standing beside the swamp. And you have to decide, is he waving the ambulance in or is he trying to protect people from going into the swamp? So if you haven't been following this... Quindell is sort of a technology company, sort of an insurance company, but it does all sorts of other weird things like loft insulation, solar panels, physiotherapy. And it also, by the way, happens to be one of the UK's largest law firms. 
And it was all put together by this serial entrepreneur called Rob Terry, who has a colourful past. He started one company, that went bust, uh, Westminster Computer Systems. He started another one, SCS Consulting, that was bought by Lava Systems, a Canadian company. They both went bust. Uh, then he founded the Innovation Group. That did a whole load of acquisitions, went up to a huge market valuation, huge amount of it written off, and investors who invested in that IPO lost 93% of their money. Then he went and bought a country club, a golf club, which he turned into a technology company by buying a huge ton of companies, more than 100 companies, using stock. And while he's done all of this, you sort of think, okay, maybe investors were getting what they expected. But then you start to look at it, and it's this question of, well, what should have investors really been thinking about when they looked at this thing? Because all of its communication is indecipherable. This huge jargonous mess of lowering the cost of claims for insurance, also whilst being a law firm, also whilst suing on behalf of thousands of people who claim that they have uh, lost their hearing due to industrial deafness. It's just this huge, fascinating mess. And the way it's facilitated by the market which allows people to sort of well, not allows people, this market in which you have uh, people promoting the stock all about this great creation that he's creating based on very aggressive accounting, all of which has now collapsed. And the reaction to examining it has really been uh, sort of one of the most surprising things about it as well. Yeah, Dan, I mean, being, I, I was watching you reporting on this story for the for the majority of the year. And, like, tell us a little bit about the reaction you got, because, I mean, the words irrational exuberance really do come to mind here. Yeah, so I set out trying to answer the question, what is Quindell? Because no one had been, well, we hadn't been paying attention to it. Dang Yu came out with this big short-selling dossier full of allegations, uh, some of which uh, were obviously defamatory, and um, there's a whole separate issue there. Then Quindell came out with this huge rebuttal, thousands of words long, which again, largely incomprehensible to someone who hadn't been paying attention. So you're like, okay, hang on, let's start from the beginning. What is Quindell? And so starting to write a series of articles looking at, okay, what what do we know about Quindell? What can we... write about it. And out of the woodwork came, I think, what we came to love as the uh, Quindell commentators, who um, had a robust approach, shall we say, to um, exchanging views and critiquing uh, the way we were looking at the company. Um, robust is a kind word, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Why do, I mean, it wasn't robust. It was It was just basically some sort of I would I would call it almost some sort of staged, uh, very calculated defence. I mean, I mean, we we had our suspicions, didn't we? Well, there were a small number of extremely vocal and let's be honest, bonkers commentators. But um, and it's quite incredible how a small number of people can make a very large amount of noise on social media, on the online world in which these things happen, particularly if you um, dip a toe into the internet message boards discussing Quindell, which that is not a recommendation for you to do, by the way. But Dan, you would say that because you're a paid shill. (laughs) Of course, yes. One of the most fun things about all of this was um, the obviously anyone who offers a critique of a company is in league with the short sellers. And so, yes, allow me to um Where are to you going on it. Christmas? You're going <laughs> to the Bahamas, right? Yes, I'm going to the Bahamas for an Illuminati uh, conference. <laughs> uh, we're all going to shed our skins and roam free as lizards can on the beaches of the elite. What I want to finish on here is what happens next? What's, what's gonna, what can oh, we expect in the new year? What happens next is going to be brilliant because Quindell has just announced that um, in conjunction with its lenders... Um, and its bankers and its advisors, it's brought in the accountants PwC to take a long, hard look at everything it's been doing accounting-wise. And it also said that um, it's fine, it can carry on, it has enough cash, so long as it has the support of its three lenders, basically. So next year, there is going to be a very interesting question about what Quindell becomes, because uh, Rob Terry, its founder, has left. He's still there as a consultant. Um, but it's. I think there are very real questions about the sustainability 
of Quindell's business model. And when you consider that it has one of the largest high-volume law firms within it, so if things were to go south for Quindell, I'm not saying that they will, if it would, we're going to have a very interesting example of um, regulation and how uh, the SRA, the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority, might deal with problems at a very large law firm. So yes, there is much more to come on Quindell next year. Thank you, Dan. That was um, a really good recap. Um, but bear with me because I want to go through my favourite story of the year. Oh, is that Bitcoin? Well, no, it isn't actually. I decided, I, I did consider Bitcoin, but then I decided that I don't want to give the Bitcoiners the promotional support of a Alphaville podcast. <laughs> um, Bitcoin was so 2013. It was so 2013. No, the story of the year, I think, is all about oil um, and the massive collapse we've just seen. And why didn't anyone see it coming? I mean, back in, uh, for most part of the year, it was we were trading in safe $100 territory and then suddenly it all came crashing down and... Um, and nobody seemed to see it coming, although I think there were a few indicators earlier in the year. Um, amongst them, we saw the, the I mean, I'm, I don't want to get too technical, but um, we saw the curve moving, which meant the speculators were moving out. There was just no support. And people were sort of um, underestimating the impact of tightening taper policy and how that might impact uh, oil. So you saw lots of notes sort of saying, Oh, we think oil prices will continue to go up, and and I couldn't help thinking, no, this is this is tightening means means there won't be enough dollars circulating through the economy. There might be a problem with with supporting prices at that level, and then really, um, when we first started seeing the curve changing, it was only among I mean, yes, I know Goldman, but it was Goldman who came out and said. Um, no, we're bearish, we're bearish, and um, and they were right. And um, interestingly enough, Goldman Goldman's whole point was that because by about October, um, everyone was wondering, well, what will OPEC do? Saudi Arabia will absolutely, definitely come in and support the market. It has no interest not to support the market. And it was Goldman, uh, only out of a few analysts who said, sort of said, no, the game theory says no. Saudi Arabia's in a price war now with shale producers. And um, in the US, and um, it has no interest in protecting it. Why should it protect the market? Because that shows weakness. Uh, in it, if anything, it should double up and start overproducing because um, it, it wants to force out the competition as quickly as possible. And Saudi Arabia has a very strong balance sheet. It can it can suffer a few years of, of crappy. Can I say crappy? I think so. I think you've said it. So. Uh... <laughs> Um, it, it can suffer a few years of rubbish uh, pricing. And lo and behold, in November, when the OPEC meeting happened, everyone was anticipating a, a cut, but it didn't happen. The cut didn't happen. But, you know, when I talk about this story, I want to talk about it in the correct drama sense of what, what it's really about. Because if there's any one thing that really illustrates what this story is about, it's this. Dan, do you know what I'm doing? Oh, I'm back there already. I'm imagining <laughs> the hair, the shoulder pads. This is, of course, um, Dynasty. <laughs> and the reason I'm playing Dynasty is because we were, we've, we've been here before. <laughs> we've been here before. Back in the 70s, the exact same thing happened. We had an oil shock uh, because the cartel, the OPEC cartel came together and and they squeezed the market. And in response, we had a huge incentive for local shell producers, uh, well, oil producers in America, alternative fuels, all these different types of independent operations to come in and, and bring in new supply. And that's exactly what they did. So by the 80s, when the shoulder pads were all like fashionable and JR was around, you know, running around te uh, Dallas, there was a massive oil glut. And it turns out the oil glut was one of the big stories in, in Dallas and, and Dynasty. And there was always like fights for Colbico and Denver Carrington because, you know, Alexis was going to bear raid uh, her ex-husband's company and bail him out because his shale technology just wasn't, you know, good enough and it was all the wrong time. And, and so I'm going to... Here's another little 
another little snippet to just give you an idea of what of what we're talking about here. <laughs> they beg us to come up with alternative energy answers. We go into hock to accomplish it. And suddenly a, a, an oil glut comes along and we're yesterday's option. A shaky one at that. Shaky one at that. The drama. Now, what, what I want to know is who's going to do the 2014 version of all this? Will it be Real Housewives of North, North Dakota? Something like that? What do you reckon? I think back to Dallas. I think we just reboot the original with JR's son. <laughs> yes, why not? Um, so there you go. That's my story. And I, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what will happen with the prices in, in 20, 2015. So what happens next then, Izzy? Um, well, we're gonna. It's gonna be a game of chicken. Who's gonna pull out first? Um, I mean, Tracy Alloway has been doing former FD Alpha villain Tracy Alloway has been doing some good work on all the um, shale loans that are now going a bit sour um, because nobody, you know, there's just no money in it anymore. And what we'll probably see is, as usual, an overreaction. Prices will get, fall too far. We'll then eventually have uh, floating storage come in. Uh, the market will balance um, and no one will invest for a few years and then we'll we'll squeeze ourselves again. And in another you know, six years, we'll have another big oil spike and, and it goes over and over and over again because this is how cycles work. And by the way, the same applies to Bitcoin <laughs> <laughs> because that's exactly what's happening in the Bitcoin mining <laughs> uh, community as well. They've like managed to um, over-concentrate themselves. There's now a cartel in the country. Cartel is on the verge of breakdown. So it's funny how like Bitcoin miners actually have a lot to do with oil producers as well. Oil is the new Bitcoin. Oil is the new Bitcoin. So you're listening to the FD Alphaville Christmas podcast. And uh, now on the line, we have Cardiff Garcia over in our New York office. And um, his sound effect, I'm just going to bring it in right now. And it goes something like... This. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell That's me. That's it. That's who? Yes. So, Cardiff. Yep. Explain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so that That's the famous skit from Abbott and Costello, and I, I think it shows what happens when two people use the same words to mean different things, right? They start talking past each other. And I use it because I think that's what's mostly happened in all the economic debates about whether secular stagnation accurately describes what's happened to the U.S. economy. So Larry Summers repopularized this concept last year. But if you go back and you read his original speech, you'll see that it was more a series of conjectures than it was like a perfectly coherent depiction of the world. And I think you'll also notice that he used really cautious language, which is totally appropriate. Uh, and since then, he's repeatedly emphasized that he could be wrong. And all this really does matter. Because, I mean, in a public conversation with Christine Lagarde earlier this year, Janet Yellen even cited secular stagnation as one of the possible reasons that the Fed had downgraded its estimates for the economy's potential growth rate. So why don't we just start with a crude overview of what secular stagnation actually means, right? It's a proposition that advanced economies, as they're currently structured, can choose either adequate growth, so growth at potential with full employment and all the benefits that come with that, or they can have financial stability, but they can't have both. And then there are a bunch of explanations that are offered by the theory. They, they go something like this. One is that businesses in the developed world want to save more than they want to invest. Another is that richer households, wealthier households that want to invest have really not very many options. So they save instead, while lower income households will borrow to invest or to consume more money than they're earning. Another is that the lack of investment restrains growth. Another is that too much borrowing by those lower income households raises the chances of asset bubbles. Uh, and then finally, we have the idea that the policies and mainly accommodative monetary policy that are meant to rectify this imbalance between the desire to save and the desire to invest are either inadequate to the task or they're inherently destabilizing. In some cases, they're both, and they really don't do much to alleviate inequality. So those are the explanations. It's probably worth also looking at what the evidence is that they might be right. And this is also a little bit, uh, a little bit involved, so give me a second. One is that the U.S. economy has made very little progress since the recovery started in restoring growth back to potential. I think everybody can agree on this. 
right? But another is that the estimated potential growth rate is roughly half of what it was thought to be before the recession. Second is that the main reason for the decline in potential growth since the crisis isn't a technological slowdown. It's that there hasn't been that much capital investment, and there's definitely been a smaller labor input than was expected before. The labor input just means fewer potential hours worked because so many people have fallen out of the labor force. Labor force participation has fallen more than expected. Another is that this isn't just about the U.S., and I think you see something similar in other advanced economies, mainly in Europe and Japan. It also seems that there is increasingly a trade-off between healthy growth on the one hand, financial stability on the other. Fourth, it's been more than 15 years, at least, since the U.S. economy itself has grown strongly without also becoming less stable financially. And then finally, other trends also suggest a problem. So you have falling rates of population growth, you have changes in the distribution of income, capital goods have gotten cheaper, and then at the global macroeconomic level, there was a savings glut and a safe asset grab that's lowered the neutral interest rate and possibly even made it negative. So this is where we actually have to start talking about the discussion so far, the debate in the economics commentariat, or whatever you want to call it, because there's conflicting evidence for a lot of these claims. And it's also important to note, I think, that Summers himself doesn't try to say which pieces of evidence are the most influential. Now, the least forgivable mistake, I think, that some commentators have made is to confuse secular stagnation with the technological stagnation theories that have also become popular. But this mistake, honestly, isn't really all that common. Much more common is just for commentators to focus on just one of the conjectures that was made by Summers and then try to prove if the whole idea is right or wrong. So they'll look only at estimates of the neutral rate of interest, or they'll look only at the relevance of inequality, or only at the inevitability of asset bubbles, or only at whether monetary policy is powerless to offset the negative consequences uh, for growth. And honestly, it's been really frustrating to observe. So I just want to make two final points here. The first is that you don't really need a label like secular stagnation to discuss these issues. If inequality is, in fact, forcing this choice between bubbles and growth, then that should continue to be empirically studied. And if it's true, then it can be targeted by policymakers. If the problem is an excess of money chasing too few safe assets, then the world's developed economies should target these big macroeconomic imbalances that create this excess while also producing more safe assets. Now, a coherent theory sometimes does help to concentrate minds on a big issue or whatever, but I think in this case, I'm not so sure it's helped. And then the second and final point, I want to say something about what this means for next year and beyond, because there's something said by Summers that I really liked and that almost never gets enough attention. He writes about something called an inverse Say's law, and all that means is this idea that a lack of demand now means smaller potential supply later on. It's a simple and a powerful idea, but underemphasized, I think. So essentially, it just says that boosting economic growth now ensures it will keep the ability to have strong economic growth later. One way to do this, for instance, is to encourage both public and private spending, uh, especially now that interest rates are low. So that's why infrastructure is such a popular idea, investing in infrastructure, which both grows the economy this year, but it also provides all the physical structures you need for a healthier economy later. Same thing with education. It provides more jobs you know, for teachers now or for construction workers now, but it also ensures a smarter workforce later on. But there are other ways. Looser immigration policy it means more immediate demand for housing and other consumer products, but it also means a bigger workforce later on and all the gains from specialization that that brings. And all this is, I think, related to a big theme I'm expecting for next year and later on, which is the return of supply-side issues to a similar prominence that demand-side issues have demanded since the crisis. And I think we'll also come to learn that demand-side and supply-side issues are no longer quite as separable as they have been. So in addition to immigration, you have the possibility of tax reform, infrastructure. There's a big Supreme Court decision on occupational licensing, uh, intellectual property issues. I'm expecting more and more discussion of these things in the years to come. Kind uh, of. I mean, there's a lot of food for thought there. But I just wanted to sort of, you know, you mentioned public spending, looser immigration policy. Those sound like political constraints. I mean, if we haven't had those ideas come up and actually be enacted by now, why are they going to be enacted at this point? Well, there's definitely no guarantee that they will be. And any time you have a divided government, essentially you're, you're going to end up with policymakers focusing on just those things that they agree on. Right now, I think those issues are basically limited to you know corporate tax reform. But I, I would also make the point that 
as the economy continues to strengthen, it becomes a little bit easier to do some of these things, mm. right? So if the deficit were as high as it had been a few years ago, you would not just fail to consider any of these possibilities. You would actually be doing things that were probably actively harmful, as a lot of actively harmful things were, in fact, done in the last few years. So I don't know. I mean, there, there's reason for pessimism there. I don't entirely disagree with you on that. But, you know, these things can happen slowly. And I still think that whether or not they happen politically or whether or not they're even possible politically, I think in terms of the economics debates that we witness, I think they'll gain greater prominence. Cardiff, because you were so very eloquent and extremely serious, I've decided because it's... To, to this... inject some humor? No, 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 not at all. It's simply because this is a Christmas podcast and, I've, and you know, you're talking about, well, let's face it, this is the season of giving and demand for uh, all sorts of fancy gadgets from the future, um, yes. and so I just thought I'm gonna I'm gonna play my favorite uh, sound effect anyway, even though you banned me from doing so. No, go for it. <coughs> Can you guess what it is yet? That's the Jetsons. Here it comes. Da 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 da. There you go, just a bit of fun. So, but you see, the, explain maybe to our re, uh, listeners uh, the connection there with the with the Jetsons. Yeah, well, I, I guess the, the the issue I mentioned at one point how people tend to confuse secular stagnation with the sort of supply side technological stagnation uh, issues. And I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is that we might discover over time that those two debates, although they're different, are also um, they also belong side by side. If that makes sense, I mean, I'm criticizing some people for having confused the two while also saying that we should be having both of the, those debates at the same time. But, you know, if you want an economy that later on um, is able to grow at a higher potential than we're now expecting, then you need both demand side solutions now. And we haven't finished there, I think. Um, but you also need things that, that are going to ensure uh, that the kind of technological progress that we experienced and enjoyed in the past is able to continue in the future. That means, in some cases, you know, I don't know, deregulating things. Uh, it means public investment in some things. And so, I, you know, they're all part of the same policy debate. I think we need to be having both of those debates side by side. I just think it's important not to confuse the two things. So what I thought might be quite nice, just to finish off, we've had, obviously, just a recap, We've had Dan talking about the Quindell story. We've had myself explaining what happened in oil this year. We've had Joseph running us through the Russia Russia crisis. Um, Matt gave us the lowdown on the interest rate hike that never materialized in actual higher yields. And then uh, yourself on secular stagnation and the crosstalk. But what about the also-rans? What were some of the other... Let, let's just, you know... A few stories. Let's not explain them. Let's just, you know, what were the other highlights in your sure. of, of, of the year? You know, uh, we expected at the end of last year for inequality to be a huge issue this year, and I think it was. I mean, the, the Piketty book turned out to be, I think, even more popular and even more a part of the debate than anybody could have expected, even even somebody who was optimistic about about its importance. Uh, the Eurozone, ECB QE, everyone was looking for it this year. Uh, you know, every month they'd go to, you know, the tune into the ECB press conference expecting Draghi to announce he was going to buy something, anything. Uh, oh, actually, and they did. They said, oh, well, we'll buy ABS and covered bonds. But it was never enough. And, you know, the inflation projections kept falling in the Eurozone. And we're now waiting, you know, maybe it'll come in January or next year sometime. So that was the big also ran of the of the year, I think. Yeah. And I I I would put in there Uber, like all the kind of sharing economy stuff and how we've realized that um it's not that sharing at all. These are relatively ruthless companies that are being very mercenary like in their approach to um to the collaborative economy and uh, and suddenly these companies are you know we're realizing that maybe it's there is a bit of a exploitation issue going on we learned with just an extraordinary emphasis that we really do live in a disinflationary world right now and you can blame that on all sorts of things but i guess that the point is that the secular pressures exerting themselves on the global economy 
have shifted in a disinflationary direction from where they were before. If they're not outright disinflationary or deflationary, they've definitely shifted in that direction. I don't know if that's because of population issues, demographics, inequality, or what, but that to me was a big deal, and it was a big deal even before the big collapse in the oil price. Uh, I've got one, one, one more. Argentina, Parry Passi. Oh, well, well, I can talk to that. I mean, um, ah, that's a weird one because Argentina did, in the end, default. Um, I mean, it says it's in default, but it did really um, in the summer because of this, you know, this this amazing new regime in sovereign debt enforcement. And the court said, well, you, look, you can't pay your restructured debt until you pay the holdouts. And Argentina said, nope, not going to do that. So it kind of played out as we thought. And yet there's been a kind of a uh, cold war between Argentina and the holdouts in the months since because they haven't been willing to negotiate and yet the market hasn't really penalised Argentina. Like If you look at the prices of restructured bonds, they're still quite high because everyone is more or less hanging on and thinking, well, they will make a deal when they're good and ready and maybe that will be early next year. Maybe it won't be until Argentina has elections uh, much later in the year so i mean that will be one to watch but as ever in the parapassu saga nothing ever goes quite the way people expect thanks everyone for joining us on this christmas podcast um we hope it was at least a little bit informative a little bit interesting and perhaps you smiled um a wee bit as well thank you very much have a good year and looking forward to looking forward to a happy 2015 Bye, everyone. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Say goodbye, Joseph. Dosvidania. <laughs> Dosvidania. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.